The New Testament reading is taken from Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thank you, Julia. And good morning, everyone. Uh, let me pray before we unpack this passage together. Lord God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts this morning that you would speak to us through your word and change us to be more who you want us to be. Amen. So let me start with a question, uh, as we often do. What is your priority as you get up in the morning? What is your priority as you get up in the morning? For me, I'm very much a creature of uh, routine and habit. On a normal weekday morning, priority number one is get the kids up and out of bed. Number two, get breakfast on the go. Uh, for me, it's two Weetabix, glass of orange juice, toast, thick cut marmalade, very important, mug of coffee. I used to skim the uh, news headlines quickly on the BBC News app, but over Christmas, our youngest uh, daughter, Harriet, uh, started eating, so it's now a bit of an octopus-like operation to get all of the right food into the right mouths at the right time. Priority number three, uh, check the packed lunches, make sure everyone's ready for school, check the school bags. Uh, get shoes on, brush teeth, get coats on, out the door. I wonder what your early morning priorities look like. And then let me ask you, as I've been asking myself this week, how would those priorities look different if you knew you were at war? How would they look different if you knew you were at war? Well, that's pretty much the context into which the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy in the church at Ephesus. Uh, as we continue this morning. So let me quickly recap at what we've looked at in the previous two weeks. So two weeks ago, Ken took us through the first half of chapter one, and it's warning to stay well clear of false teaching. And then last week, Jonathan uh, encouraged us to keep going in the face of those threats to wage the good warfare or to fight the good fight. In other words, to stick to sound teaching in the face of that false teaching. So the Apostle Paul has made his case for why fight, and now here in chapter two comes the how. In other words, what is the way in which we are meant to fend off false teaching and hold our course as Christians? And here's the first of my two main points this morning. Number one, pray. Pray for the salvation of all people. Look, at me, look with me at uh, chapter two, verse one of 1 Timothy, which says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And the key word here is just three letters long, all. One of the likely bits of false teaching in Ephesus was around who could be saved. And some were thinking that salvation was for a spiritual elite, not for everyone. And we saw this in verses three and four in chapter one. You had to come from a certain background or had to have some kind of special wisdom or special knowledge in order to interpret what the Bible says. And Paul says, no, God is a saving God. And his desire, the very heart of his being and who he is, is for all people to be saved. Verse three, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. One of the impacts of this false teaching on the church was for the church to become inward looking, to focus on arguing about who was in and who was not in. So as is priority for the church, Paul says, stop looking in and look out. Look out at the world that God has made. Look out at the people around you. Look at the people that God has created in his image and he longs to be in a relationship with and pray for them. As one commentator says, this is the perfect antidote to a church that has become inward looking. And if that's God's heart, then it's absolutely right that we pray for it too. And I want to call out three things about this prayer. Firstly, we should pray intentionally with every kind of prayer. Here Paul uses four different kinds of words to describe prayer, and there's not a huge amount of difference between them. But the point is rather that we should pray in every way we can because it's so important. Remember that Paul started the passage by saying, first of all, by this he means that these prayers are of first importance. So when we pray on our own, is this at the top of our agenda? Is it something that we make time for every day to pray for those we know and those we don't? Do we persevere in prayer for them? At church prayer meetings or in our midweek groups, it's absolutely right that we bring personal prayer needs to, to others and to the Lord. But how often do we simply just make time to pray for people to be saved? It also doesn't have to be big, long prayers. Perhaps you just meet someone at work or in some other context. Will you pray for them right there? Lord, you desire this person to be saved. Will you work in their heart? Secondly, we should pray for all people. And when we say all people, we mean quite literally no one is beyond God's desire. And so we need to pray for all, uh, in all kinds of ways for all kinds of people and use every opportunity to do so. You may have heard before of the Joshua Project. It, uh, it aims to put a number on how many people have not been reached by the gospel. That is, people groups who need outside evangelistic input because they don't have the people or the resources within themselves to share the gospel. And out of an estimated population of the world of about 7.8 billion, they reckon that over 3 billion people still need to hear about the God who made them and loves them and sent his son to die for them. 3 billion people. Some of us may be called in our lifetime to go to another part of the world to share this good news, but all of us can and must pray. 
This year, will you be diligent in prayer for Chris and Rosie as they upsticks and move to Spain, where an estimated 1%, 1% of the population identify as evangelical Christians? Will you pray for them and the people that they're going to come alongside? Closer to home, will you pray for people here in Benwell in the West End? Will you pray for families that we know through things like CAP and Fry Up? And if you don't think you've got the time to pray for anything much more than yourself and your family, then, then make time, please. Remember that God longs for the world to turn back to him in faith, and we're called to wage the good warfare by praying. So what needs to go from your schedule in order to make time and space for this? Thirdly, we should pray specifically for leaders. Paul calls out kings and all who are in high positions. Back for the church in Ephesus, this would have referred as much as anyone to the Roman Empire and the Emperor Nero. And it's fair to say that Nero was not a kind ruler to Christians. He was well known for being corrupt and compulsive, and he kick-started a state-sponsored persecution of Christians. A few years before was the Great Fire of Rome, where Nero actually blamed this on Christians when the rumors on the ground were that Nero himself started the fire in order to make way for a palace. Not a friend of Christians by any stretch. And here is Paul asking Timothy to pray for leaders, including Nero. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All leaders, all those in positions of authority, whether at work or in government or at home, whether for us or against us, all people need to come to hear, God, uh, to, need to come to know God our Savior. That's number one on the list. But also, Paul acknowledges that these leaders are in positions that can help or hinder the spread of the gospel. See the second half of verse two, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Um, many of you will know uh, my three kids, aged seven and under. Um, bedtime the other night involved uh, a disco ball, a screaming baby, and the music from Frozen being played at full pelt. A peaceful and quiet life sounds right up my street. But that's not quite what Paul means here. This isn't about living free from trouble, but rather in a godly and dignified way by which he means a life following Jesus and obeying him. And the prayer here is that Christians might live in a world society that gives us freedom to do that. Our culture and nation, as it was for Timothy and Paul, is on a slippery slope where it's becoming harder and harder to be open about what we believe. How many of us have held back in the workplace about saying something from Jesus, saying something of Jesus because of fear of recrimination from human resources, or for even losing our job. The idea here is that if leaders are Christians, they will put into place patterns and rules and laws that support believers in living out their faith in full view of the world. Think about it in our context here in the UK. Imagine, imagine if, in spite of everything going on in politics at the minute, Boris Johnson became a Christian tomorrow and was so transformed by saving faith in the Lord Jesus that laws are changed and the tide of culture moves so that Christians are able to speak openly 
about Jesus at work and in public without any fear? Will you pray for him? It's also easy to read this and think of just politicians and those in government, but this could go for any leader. Pray for your manager at work. Pray for, they, pray, pray for their manager, the captain of your sports team. Pray for those who make rules and create cultures of any kind. Their greatest need as leaders is absolutely to know Jesus, but they do have a special ability to influence the lives of others too. Now in saying everything that I've said so far, I'm aware that there will be many here who have been praying for a friend or family member for many years to come to faith. And you may, like me, have been tempted to give up. Can I encourage you to keep going? We don't know the eternal will of God for every person, but we do know quite clearly here from God's word that he desires all people to be saved. Please keep praying. I can think of two people in my own life uh, who I used to pray for regularly, but over time, the opportunities to speak with them simply dried up, and the prayers were fewer and farther between before simply stopping. In preparing this past week, I've been invigorated and convicted to pray again regularly for that colleague who doesn't know Jesus, and for that family member who openly rejects Jesus. And in doing so, I've found that God has filled my heart with a greater love for them and a greater desire for them to come to know Jesus. Who do you need to pray more for this week? So Paul calls us to pray for the salvation of all people because the second of my two points, Jesus is the only way for salvation. Look with me at verses five to seven. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I mentioned earlier about the threat that the Ephesians faced from Rome. Why was Nero scared of Christians? Because they preached that Jesus was the only way to God. Not Nero, not Caesar, but Jesus. And this is what Paul himself taught when he was with the church a few years before. And now he reminds them of the truth of the gospel in these amazing few verses. Let's walk through them together. Firstly, there is one God, one God. Paul calls this out really clearly. And those from a Jewish background would have been reminded of Deuteronomy 6. After the Israelites were presented with the Ten Commandments, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, not many gods. And in a society that can make a God out of anything, isn't this such a comfort and a relief? Secondly, there is one mediator. Sometimes people might agree with you that there is one God, but then follow up by saying, ah, but there's there's lots of ways to get to him. There's lots of routes up the mountain. Paul says, no. A mediator is someone who represents two parties in a conflict or a disagreement in order that they might be reconciled. In other words, someone who stands between two people who are at odds with each other and deals with the issue that separated them in the first place. The Bible teaches quite clearly that we've all sinned. We were reminded of that last week. 
And because of his holiness, God can't tolerate sin. So on one side, we have a perfect and holy God. And on the other side is us, separated from God because of our sin. We need a mediator to stand between us and God to solve that conflict. And who is this mediator? The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is only one God and one way to be saved through God himself in the person of Jesus. And how does he do that? He gives his own life, the most that anyone can give, on the cross as a payment to buy us back. Perhaps you're here this morning and this is new to you. Jesus is making this offer of ransom for you. God desires you to come to know this saving truth for yourself. All you and I have to do is accept it. And for those of us that have been Christians for a while, perhaps this is all too easy to gloss over. One God, Jesus, gospel, tick. But please don't. Where are we perhaps tempted to introduce other gods or more subtly, other mediators to God? Perhaps you've been at a funeral and you've heard someone try to offer some reassurance. They lived a good life or they were brought up in a Christian home. They might mean well, but underlying that is the suggestion that their good deeds can solve the conflict that we have with God or that their background and upbringing can in some way mediate between them and God. There is one God and one mediator, only, only one. So where are we tempted to turn to things other than Jesus as our mediator? And to turn that upside down, if you have been praying for friends or family for some time, be comforted by this. You are not their mediator. You can't bring them to God. Only Jesus could pay that ransom. So keep praying, keep praying. Remember 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 at the heart of our passage today that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The American pastor Ron Dunn wrote this in his book, Don't Just Stand There, Pray Something. Listen to this. Satan has no defense against this weapon of prayer. He does not have an anti-prayer missile. For instance, the unbeliever has many defenses against our evangelistic efforts. He can refuse to attend church. And if he does occasionally turn up, he can shift into neutral and count the cracks in the ceiling. You can go to his home, but he doesn't have to let you in. Hand him a tract on the street and he can throw it away. You can get on TV and he can switch channels call him on the phone and he can hang up. But he cannot prevent the Lord Jesus from knocking at the heart, not knocking at the door of his heart in response to our intercession. People we cannot reach any other way can be reached by way of the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, this morning we are at war with the devil. He does not want people to turn to Jesus in faith. He will try everything he can to thwart the Lord's plans. So we must keep on praying for those we know and those we don't for God to rescue them. The challenge here from Paul is to keep looking outward. Don't lose sight of God's desire for the world and pray, pray to the one who sits on the throne who desires all people to be saved.
Let's pray. Our Father God, it, it can be so discouraging to see a world that has turned against you and turned its back on you. But we praise you that you didn't leave us. We praise you that the heart of your character is for all people to be saved. And we pray that this morning, for those we know, and we name them in our hearts before you now, and we ask for your mercy on them, and we lift our eyes to the world that so desperately needs you, and we pray that you would have mercy on our nation and our world, that as we pray, we would see a great many come to know and trust in you as their Lord and Saviour. For your glory, we pray. Amen.